For Cybercrime Radio, I'm David Browie. Joining me today is Yukami Dupreez, a recently widowed woman from Australia who became a cybercrime victim after losing her husband's $760,000 life insurance to scammers. Yukami, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. Now, this is a story that I think will resonate with a lot of people, and I think the best place to start with a story like this is to start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my husband of 25 years passed away, unfortunately, while we were relocating from Perth to Melbourne in Australia. And this was about end of 2021. Now, he had a life insurance policy that paid out quite a large amount. And I settled some debts in the business that he had with some of that money. But there was about 760000 Australian dollars left that I wanted to invest whilst I'm deciding where am I and the kids going to settle in Melbourne and what sort of property I needed to buy. So I asked my financial planner in Perth his view on how best to put this money aside for a period of about six months until I can sort out all the other estate matters. And he recommended a term deposit and he specifically mentioned Macquarie Bank. This is a bank in Australia. They don't have any branches. Everything's online. So I Googled them using my work laptop. And it's important to know that it was the work laptop. I'll come back to why I say that later. And up comes a website and it has all the Macquarie logos on it, you know, everything that you would expect. Now, I didn't check the URL in detail because it looks like the Macquarie website. And I think that's one learning probably is that you need to be careful with these URLs, but I'll come back to what we discovered after all of this happened and we started investigating. Anyway, I filled in the online form providing all my information to open a term deposit account with Macquarie Bank. And the next day, a person called me, introduced himself as a banker from Macquarie Bank, gave me his name. His name was Mark, had a British accent, sounded very professional, polished, extremely eloquent in the way he answered my questions. I did have a lot of questions because I have a finance background. I was trained as a chartered accountant in South Africa, as you could hear from the accent, but I've been calling Australia home since 2006. And after working in finance roles for quite some time, eventually I veered into audit and risk management. So that's what I currently do as a job. So I'm familiar with term deposits and interest rates and how you would investigate what's the best option. So I asked a lot of questions and this person was very eloquent in answering all the questions. He knew like really detailed answers on a lot of things I asked, which if it was a banker, you would expect a banker to know those kind of details. Anyway, I even looked him up on LinkedIn and he had a LinkedIn profile. It all looked very much what I would expect. He said he was a banker at Macquarie Bank and gave a lot of career details and everything. Anyway, he emailed me and again, the email address is probably something had I had more knowledge about what the email addresses from Macquarie look like, I could have picked it up. I didn't look at the email address in that detail, but it did have Macquarie in the name. It said Macquarie Legal, you know, so it wasn't something weird like a Hotmail address or anything. It was from a MacquarieLegal.com, which I assumed was legit address. <laughs> yeah. Was it a Macquarie Dash Legal or a Macquarie? Sometimes they'll do that where they put in extra characters and that sort of thing. Was it anything like that? No, it just said Macquarie Legal. I think the legal should probably have turned off David, but anyway. 
So I provided on email the additional documentation they asked for, which is my identification and a few other credit records, which again, you would expect to provide. And it wasn't strange to me that this is all on email because in my head, I knew they didn't have a branch. And so this again is something that we probably need to learn. Now I don't do (laughs) online banking all that much anymore. I go into the branch (laughs) to speak to a real person. Anyway, so I then opened this account. They emailed me the details of the account. This is the one thing that later on tipped me off is that I asked for internet banking details to access this account online. And they kept saying, we'll send it, we'll send it, we're setting it up, we're setting it up. Anyway, this was on the second day I then started. I went to the Commonwealth Bank. It's another bank in Australia where I had the money in an account. And I showed them this account that was provided to me. And I said to them, I want to do this pay into this account to make a term deposit with Macquarie Bank. Can you check that this is a valid account? Now, the bank's response was, we don't take any responsibility for that. It's your responsibility to make sure it's a valid account. And they even made me sign a form to say that I take all responsibility for paying into this account. So this made me really nervous. So I actually walked away from the branch and thought, no, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if this is a valid account. And I left it. The next day, he called me back, this so-called banker, and he convinced me. He was very convincing, very good at this. He's so smooth convincing me to do transactions, like do it online, and it's easier than to go through the bank. And again, this is another tip-off, right, if they insist on online banking. Anyway, I did stupidly transferred a number of times because I couldn't transfer that big amount in one go. So I made four transactions from the Commonwealth Bank and four transactions from a NAB. NAB is another bank in Australia that I also had an account with. So I transferred from both accounts into this account. And after two days, I still haven't received the internet banking details. And then I got nervous. And it was a public holiday in Australia on that day. And I couldn't talk to the branch directly. So I called the fraud line of Macquarie Bank and I gave them this account. And I said, can you check this account? And they said to me, we don't have this account. I cannot explain to you the shock, horror. I was sick in my, to the pit of my stomach. It's just, yeah, it was really so bad. And this was only two months after my husband passed away and I had that shock. It was almost the same kind of feeling of dread and your whole body (laughs) goes into shock. And I didn't know what to do. I was just in such a panic and I was home alone too. But anyway, I was in a heap. We can only imagine, I think, and certainly our condolences, this is a terrible time for anybody to be caught up in and then having to deal with something this stressful immediately afterwards as well. I can only imagine what you were going through. I was in a state, David, and I must say my faith kept me going because I just prayed. I started praying to God that whole night. (laughs) I said to God, God, I need a miracle and I just need you to come through because I can't cope with this. I can't handle it. I don't know what to do. This is the money I was meant to buy a house with for after my husband's passed away. And my brother-in-law was very encouraging. He was in the South African Defence Force and He's a very inspiring person in terms of fighting back on things and not just letting things go. So he said to me, Yakumi, you've got to fight back. You can't let this go. You can't let them win. You can fight back. Let's try, you know. So he logged my story on a television program, a journal program in Australia called The Current Affair. And so he went online and logged the story. And we didn't think anything would come of it. At the same time, the next day, because it wasn't the public holiday anymore, I called 
a friend of mine that works in treasury, I said to him, can you please help me look up this bank account and give me the name or of the institution this went to? Did it go to another bank? Where did it go to? So he helped me. I also called my friend Philip, who works in cybersecurity for a company called Zscaler, and they work on very large accounts across Australia, including the company I work for as account. And I explained the whole story to Philip and I said, can you go into my logs, my work logs, because I was 100% sure I used my work computer. Can you go into my logs and check what website did I access? I don't understand what happened here. It was a memory by then. It was a distant memory about what you'd actually been doing and where you'd gone. Exactly, because I was on the internet all the time and I was looking at different banks and different rates. And so I wasn't sure in my own mind how on earth did I stumble across this mess? And so I asked Philip to go back to get my records from the company, which he could access through the IT team legally. And he got my records and he started drilling through it. And I said, look on this day, look at everything I did on that day. And he did. And so what's actually happened, he called me back later that day. It's a fake website. They made a 100% copy of the Macquarie website. I don't know the technical details of how they do that, David. I'm not an IT person. But Philip said the way they bypass the controls of the company I work for, because normally the company I work for, because a large global organization, they have strong controls in place. And that these controls should have blocked this kind of website. It normally does. So Philip initially said to me, no, you must have used something else because the website would have been blocked by your work controls. And I said, no, but I haven't used my iPad. I'm 100% sure I use my work laptop. So then he said, oh, I found the loophole. What they actually did, they used what he said was an Amazon frontage. So my very basic understanding, and I don't know any IT guys, but um, my basic understanding is that it bypassed the controls because the controls thought I was accessing Amazon. So he was emulating a different website, which was considered to be legitimate, but at the same time, redirecting you to their site outside of the protections of the company system. Correct. So Philip actually then spoke to the IT team at the company I work for, and I put him in touch with the head of our IT department. And I said, you've got to tell Chris about this. Can we please increase the controls? Not that I blamed the company I work for. It was nothing to do with them. But, you know, at least someone else wouldn't stumble across these kind of things then through that same loophole. Anyways, my treasury friend came back and he said, this bank account is in a what they call a money platform. So it's called Manova, a company called Manova, and they run a money platform. So what is that? Well, my basic understanding, David, which again, I stand to be corrected. I'm not that involved in banking systems, but my understanding is banks use these kind of companies to transfer money to and from different banks. So as a common sort of area where money goes through. And so it was paid into an account on this money platform. And so I got a hold of a telephone number and now my auditing skills, fraud investigation skills kicked in. So I looked and looked and I found a telephone number for this company and I called them and I went through about 10 people and pleading and threatening and crying to get some help. And finally, I ended up the lady that helped me. And I said, look, I'm not asking any confidential information. All I need to know is what was the next account it went to. And the same thing, it was then a company called Cuscol. The same thing, it's a money platform. So I called Cuscol, same way. Like a clearinghouse for transactions. Exactly. There's about three of them that it went through. This was the Tuesday. And at the same time, then this journal program called me back to say they 
want to do the story. They want to film it the next morning and then have it on television the next evening. But they wanted to do the legwork on that same day. So I started telling the whole story and I told them where I was in the investigation. And I actually shared that I hit a dead end because I couldn't get a telephone number for a company that was the last leg in the transaction, as far as I could see, was a company called Elbate. That is a cryptocurrency company in Australia. I could find their website. I emailed on their website like 10 times on their help desk or whatever, but there was no telephone number I could get and no one I could call. Now, this is where A Current Affair actually helped me a lot because they found a telephone number for the founder of this company, one of the founders, a guy called Morty. And they got a hold of Morty and asked Morty, can he give me a call and talk to me about this? And he did. And then Morty froze the money. Fantastic. Had we been hours later, he said, it would have been gone. He wouldn't have been able to stop it. And so he was actually based in Docklands. At this point, I was so distraught, I didn't know whether Morty was real. So I actually asked him, can I come to Docklands, which is an area in Melbourne, to meet with you over a coffee? And I just want to see that you're real. (laughs) So he was very kind. And he said, sure. He was very understanding. And Elbate actually is one of the company's crypto trading platforms that has better controls, I realized, because he said, look, I already found this suspicious. So anyway, we had a coffee and I could see that he was real, but I kept questioning him. I said, can you put in writing for me like that you've got my money? You know, I don't trust anything now. (laughs) Are you one of the scammers? I even asked him, Morty, are you involved in this? Are you one of the scammers? And I said, please don't take any offense. But I just, at that point, you feel like you can't trust anyone. You've been through the ringer, haven't you? And you're just thinking, what's real? What's not real? What have I done? What can I do? There's so much going through your head, definitely. Yeah, and you feel like you have no control and you feel like everyone's involved in the scam and you're the only one that's stupid and has fallen for this nonsense. And anyway, so eventually about a week or two weeks later, I can't remember the exact dates, David, the money was transferred back through the banking system. It took that long because the banks had to complete their sort of side of the investigation, which really made me angry because when I first called them, when I found out it was not a legit account, I called the fraud lines for both banks, Commonwealth and NAB. And their response was very, I don't know, not helpful at all. It was, oh, yeah, this kind of happens all the time and you're not going to get your money back. You know, we can't really help you kind of thing. That's very helpful of them, isn't it? Yes. uh, Yeah. And it's like, oh, you've been stupid. So, you know, we're not going to help you. And it makes me really angry. Look, I've worked in mining all my career and I love the mining industry and what benefits it brings to people. It gets a hard time in the public domain, but it has so many benefits. But mining companies, people don't realize how much they spend on looking after the environment, the communities we operate in. And there's literally billions of dollars going into social developments and things in mining. These banks make double the amount of money mining does, and they take no social responsibility for this, which really makes me feel angry. So I reported it to the ASIC in Australia, and I reported to the APRA, the governing body of banks in Australia, to try and influence the regulations so the banks actually have to take more accountability. I haven't had much luck yet, but I'm still trying. (laughs) It's definitely a a big battle, and that's been an ongoing issue. 
to, not in your defense, but I guess to clarify the situation, this happens a lot. I mean, your case is just harrowing in terms of the amount, the stress on you, the very real possibility that you would never have seen this money again. Yeah, but David, I as an individual could find it within those two days. You know, how can the banks not? Well, this is the question, I guess, what point is their responsibility finished? I had a look. Now, the National Anti-Scam Center in Australia runs a service called ScamWatch, and they keep track of reports of scams like this. In the first sort of eight months of this year, people have reported already nearly 6,000 scams and $222 million taken by scammers. And this is just Australian statistics where you're from. It is staggering. It is staggering. And to think the banks, of course, should be involved in this. But it's such a, a massive problem. You can almost understand why they just want to wash their hands of it. At the same time, they're the only ones that can help, aren't they, in this sort of situation? I don't know. But there can be better controls they implement in their systems and in their processes. I'm 100% certain that they could actually improve it. There's new legislation in the UK, I believe, that I read about the other day that's actually going to force banks to actually give money back to customers in these kind of situations, which will then in turn force them to relook at the control systems. But I was very grateful and God gave me my miracle and I shared the story in church. And so I guess the good of all of this is that I did get a miracle and I could share that story. So from a faith perspective, (laughs) it had some benefit. Thank goodness in the end. Yeah. So I think there's quite a few warning signs, David, had I not been probably so hasty and already maybe distraught to some extent, maybe should have picked up. I was going to ask about that. So if you step back a little bit through the story, which is just an amazing story, and thank goodness it has a good ending. What do you think maybe was the first point where you should have seen something and you maybe just didn't? You kind of just said, okay, I'll trust this. I didn't see it. But I think when you look at these websites, you have to force yourself to look at the URL Not that we're all experts and that you would necessarily pick up something, but if it does say something odd like Amazon when you're on a banking site, probably that's a giveaway. Now, I don't know if this one did or didn't. I didn't actually get the details from my friend on that, what it actually said, but I assume the URL wouldn't have been sort of the right one. I think the second tip of David was the email address, as I said, because... If you're doing banking online and you're dealing with a person that says they're from the bank, I think then we should pay more attention and actually call the bank and say, does this person work here? Can I speak to this person? And not on the number that they gave you, because the number actually that they gave me, I called. There was like a whole call center set up for the scam, right? This is a big thing. It wasn't small. A guy in a garage somewhere. This was big time. And you probably weren't the only person that they were dealing with as well. He was your case manager, so to speak. Exactly. They put me through to this person as if it's a bank. But I would recommend that next time I would call a different number, the actual bank number, and go through a different route to verify it. And don't rely on LinkedIn because they can create a profile on LinkedIn, as they did in this case. Don't rely on websites. I know lots of other people have called me after they've seen that I've gotten my money back to try and help them. And they also had similar horror stories about losing money and what happened to them. And a lot of it was around websites created for these, what I would call share schemes that they link to banks, but it's not the actual bank. And they also use these fake websites. So don't rely on websites. So pretending to be like a subsidiary almost or a sister company to the bank. 
Correct, they do. They do pretend to be that. They register on the ASX. You'll check all those details and you can find the registration of this company. And they're thorough. They really do it for one and probably invest some money to get this whole set up and then catch a lot of people. And then the other tip-off was just the internet banking details and not getting those before you transfer the money. Definitely, that would be an important thing to check. And there is a lot of effort among the banks to try and improve the visibility of transfers, trying to get a sense of where the money's going and does that match where you think the money's going. They're certainly working on that a bit in response to there being so many scams. It is hard and the scale of it is so hard on every side, isn't it? As you said, they were probably running inside of a, a pretty sophisticated call center that could reach people anywhere in the world be doing very similar things. Yes. And I don't think beyond that, anything would have tipped me off. And maybe I would never deal with a bank that's only online again. I would go into the branch and make sure they can help you as much as they can at that point, even though I did initially and they weren't much help. I think at least you speak to a real person and they can see where the money's going. They've kind of trained us out of expecting to be able to go into a branch. The way that banks have gone is that they're trying to shift everybody online and get them to do most of their banking where there's very low contact. It's much cheaper for them. It's more convenient for people. But this is almost the downside of that, isn't it? Because you have to take so much on trust when you're working online and you have to hope that you're at the right website. You have to hope that you're dealing with real people and your money is going to a real place. Yeah, it's an absolute breeding ground for these scams because it just becomes a lot easier for them. And you ask where I am now. I did buy a house after about six months. And when I had to pay this money over to the trust account to buy this house, I was so nervous. I think I had PTSD, not realizing it, because when I had to go to the bank, I was literally crying on the way there and feeling really nauseous. And I was completely stressed out. I could not believe that I had that kind of reaction. And I had to call a friend to come with me. And I called the attorney three times to make sure it's her trust account, it's the right account, three times from the bank. I made the bank call her. (laughs) And so, yes, it does really leave a mark on you. I can imagine so. And it's wonderful that you did get the money back and that you were able to get the house. Congratulations, because that was the thing that you wanted there originally was just to be able to provide for yourself and your children just have that stability that your husband wanted for you. So it's wonderful that you ended up in the right place, but it sounds like it was quite a journey to get there. Yeah, no, it was, David. And I feel so sorry for all the people who haven't been able. Like I was highly, highly, highly exceptional because I had about, oh, I can't tell you the number, hundreds of people contacting me through Facebook after the program aired on national television in Australia because they were so desperate to find out how did I get the money back? What did I do? Can they do it themselves? What advice can I give them? And these people, the numbers, this one lady, she's a teacher, her husband's a plumber. They've saved all their life to buy a house and they lost 500,000 Australian dollars through something similar. It was one of those, like, looks like a share trust you pay money into and then it's a fake account. Like it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, every single one. It's not 10 or 20. It is staggering. And I couldn't help any of these people, which I found really frustrating because it was too far down the track to actually follow the trail. This is it. The money goes very quickly, doesn't it? Yes. Within a day or two. If you're not on top of it in a day or two, it's gone. 
Do you think what you talked about your auditing skills, and this is something that you're used to doing, is following the money? Usually it's other people's money. In the context of what you had to do, do you think that that really helped you or was it simply a case of persevering? You know, calling, really trying to talk to people that maybe weren't so interested in helping you until you found someone that was. It's probably a bit of both, David. I think in auditing, you learn perseverance because <laughs> most people don't like being audited. And so you learn to talk to people to find out what's going on and you learn to keep going until you get to the bottom of things. So, yeah, I think it's auditing skills from a technical perspective, knowing sort of how systems work and what information's available. And that helped because I could say, this is the information I want. I don't want any confidential information and just give people that, I guess, comfort. But also it's perseverance in terms of, well, keep going until I find something because giving up is not actually going to help me at this point. So yeah, just perseverance and keep praying as well along the way after every call. Whatever you did, it clearly worked. And that's the wonderful thing. So many points where this could have gone very, very wrong, even in terms of the timing. As you said, it was going to be converted to crypto pretty soon. It sounds like they had tried to transfer the money a few times through different accounts to try and obscure the trail a little bit. And then the final destination was crypto and then it could go anywhere in the world. Thank goodness it didn't get to that. Yeah. Jackie, thank you very much for sharing your story. It really is a harrowing tale. And I think we're seeing so many of these, as you said, large amounts of money that really are just being taken. The scammers don't care whether it's $10 or $1,000 or half a million dollars, someone's life savings. Whenever they can get their hands on, they're going to take it. That's right, David. Thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity to share my lessons learned, and I sincerely hope it helps someone else. Thank you again, Jackie, for your time. uh, All the best. Speak soon. Bye-bye. For Cybercrime Radio, I'm David Browie. Joining me today was Yukami Dupreeze, recently widowed woman from Australia who became a cybercrime victim after losing her husband's $760,000 life insurance to scammers. For more of our media, visit cybersecurityventures.com.